If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. But I want to start with this quote. And I saw this quote this week. It says this, Kindness makes the invisible God real and tangible when we love one another the way that he does. Let me say it again. Kindness makes the invisible God real and tangible when we love one another the way that he does. So if this is true, where do you learn kindness? We know that kindness is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. When you have given your life to Jesus, then he's given you the gift of his Holy Spirit living inside you. And when you're walking in the Spirit and you're filled with the Spirit, you bear the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did I miss goodness? Doggone it, I knew I missed one. The point is that kindness is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit flowing out of us when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And we certainly can learn kindness from the author of kindness himself, God. Look at these three verses. Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. His kindness is not just for a moment. 1 Chronicles 16, 34. Give thanks to the Lord for his, for he is good. His loving kindness endures forever, is that word. And then even when he calls us to change our minds, to turn from our own ways to his ways, that big Bible word, repentance, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Not his threats, not his judgment, not his shaking of his fist. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So I certainly would say that we can learn kindness from the author of kindness, God. But I've learned kindness from a few others in my life. This morning I got up, I crutched out. And here's this white fluff ball named Poppy. And her tail is going on on the couch. She's so excited to see me. I feel the kindness and unconditional love from my dog. No matter what. It's such a great example of grace in our life. Then my family. I have a picture of memes here. You just saw her. My family certainly has taught me a lot of kindness along the way. And then the fathers in my life. And I got a picture of one of my spiritual fathers who's actually in the, here, here in the house today. Papa Father Gaylord. And um, when I watch Gaylord navigate through some difficult things, difficult situations, difficult moments, and he brings kindness to the table, it shifts. God's kindness introduced to conflict brings a shift in the spiritual. And God's presence always brings God's fruit. So thank you for being one of the fathers of my life, Papa Gaylord. So I've learned I've learned kindness in a, from a lot of places, but I learned kindness most when I was small. I went to Marigold Elementary School over there by Pleasant Valley High School. It is a sister campus with Loma Vista, which is a, a, a school for special education. And well, I got ahead in a few of my classes. And so they had normally been, been mainstreaming children from Loma Vista over to Marigold. So mainstreaming, here's a little definition for you, means that a school is putting children with special needs into a classroom with their peers who have no disabilities. And so this is sometimes done at specific times with specific, based on skills. 
So oftentimes we would have those from Loma Vista in our classroom, but I got ahead in a few of my subjects and they said, well, I don't know what to do with this kid. They're like, let's reverse mainstream him. I think they made it up, frankly. It's now a thing on the internet, but that doesn't mean anything. And they're like, we're going to send him to special education during the afternoons. So then, uh, since he's already ahead in some of these areas. And so I went to Loma Vista in the afternoons for at least a year of my childhood. And I worked with special needs children. And it changed my life. Changed my life because I didn't see them other than me. I saw them as with me. I sat down with, I I distinctly remember sitting down crisscross applesauce on the grass with two boys who were blind. And they said, Andy, tell us what's happening. And so I would do play by play on all of the things that were going on on the playground and try to make sure that balls weren't hitting their head as it was zooming by. There were all these moments where I received unconditional love and acceptance from these, my friends, and it changed my life. It's interesting that sometimes the pure in heart are the ones that we learn from the most. And I think the kindness of God oftentimes is demonstrated more through children and through the pure of heart. Now, this concept of kindness, it seems so vanilla, but it's really rich. So I want to take you to a little video from the Bible Project friends who put this together. And this is all about chesed. Yes, it's fun to say because it's got a ch at the beginning. Chesed is a Hebrew word for loyal love or kindness. Take a look. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this fourth phrase, loyal love. It translates the Hebrew word chesed, which is hard to translate into any language because it combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one. Chesed describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. Like in the story of Ruth, Ruth is a foreigner married to an Israelite man, but tragically her husband dies along with his brother and his father. All Ruth has left is her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, who has nothing to give her. Naomi tells Ruth she should go back to her people, but instead Ruth promises to stay by Naomi's side and take care of her. And as other people watch Ruth keep this promise over time, they call it an act of chesed. Notice that Ruth's chesed is not conditional or based on Naomi's worth. Rather, it's an expression of Ruth's character. She just is a generous and loving person who keeps her word. That's chesed. Now, Ruth's loyal love is truly inspiring, but the one who shows the most enduring chesed in the Bible is God. Like in the story about Jacob, who is a treacherous liar even to his own family. But despite that, God chooses him and repeats the promise he made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, that he would have a huge family through whom God would restore his blessing to the nations. And so 20 years later, when Jacob realizes how undeserving he is, he says to God, I'm not worthy of all the chesed you've shown me. And he's right. But God's chesed was never about Jacob's worth in the first place. 
It's a display of God's generous loyalty to his promise. God's chesed continues into the story of Jacob's descendants, the Israelites. When they're enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, we're told that God remembered his promise to Abraham and Jacob, so God defeats Egypt and raises up Moses to liberate the people and lead them into the promised land. And in the story, this is called an act of chesed because it was about God keeping his word. Now, on their way to the promised land, the Israelites are scared of the nations around them and they doubt that God can protect them. So the people threaten to kill Moses and appoint a new leader to take them back to Egypt. God is understandably hurt and angry, but Moses steps in and says, forgive the sin of these people because of your great chesed. Notice that Moses asked God to forgive, not because the people deserve it, but because it's consistent with God's own character. And God agrees, and he recommits himself to a people that don't want to be committed to him. In the Bible, God is loyal and loving for no other reason than it's just who God is. Of course he wants his people to respond with chesed in return, but even when they don't, God's chesed remains. The prophet Hosea compared Israel's chesed to a morning mist that's here one moment and gone the next. But God's chesed is enduring. Like in the celebration of Psalm 136 that opens by saying, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, and then 26 times repeats, his chesed is forever. And so, after centuries of Israel betraying their commitment to God, and after humanity's long history of violence and death, God still kept his promise in a dramatic and drastic way by becoming human and binding himself to us in the person of Jesus. And the people who followed Jesus of Nazareth said that in him they encountered the God of Israel who is full of loyal love and faithfulness. Jesus is the ultimate loyal and loving human. And in his life, death, and resurrection, God opened up a new future for all of us and for all of creation. And God did this because it's just who God is, generous, loving, and eternally loyal to his promises. And when we experience the purity and power of God's loyal love shown through Jesus, it compels us to reimagine why and how we can show chesed back to God and to the people around us. This is what it means to say that God is overflowing with loyal love. So chesed, you can call it kindness, you can call it loyal love. But as we're continuing our series through these three kings, lessons from three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, we've finally gotten to the place where David has established himself on the throne in Jerusalem. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant and he's stewarding and he's hosting the presence of God and, and radical worship 24-7 there in that tent on that hill. And things are going pretty well. He's set himself up and yet David is a promise keeper. And in our passage today, he is going to make good on a 20-year promise, a covenant that he made with Saul's family. So we're going to look at 2 Samuel 9, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, or it'll be on the screen here. But we're going to really be challenged to ask the Holy Spirit where we can show this chesed of God, this kindness of God in our own lives. So let's jump right into this passage. David asks... Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness, chesed, for Jonathan's sake? 
So this is probably 20 years after Jonathan dies. Why would David be sitting around thinking about a 20-year promise? Why would he be trying to find an heir of, John, of Saul to be kind to? Now, I think he's thinking about a few conversations. And I'm going to flash back with this. If you haven't been in part of this series, I'm just going to flash back a little bit. So you can see what's going on, I think, in David's mind. I think he's thinking about 1 Samuel 20, verse 13 where he's on the run from Saul and Jonathan, Saul's son, who is David's friend, says this, 1 Samuel 20, verse 13. Uh, But if my father is inclined to harm you, because he's been throwing spears at David, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Next verse. But show me unfailing kindness, the hesed, like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness, your hesed, from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Last verse. Verse 16, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So what's going on here? Well, the custom of any new king would be to murder anyone who had a right to the throne. You would eliminate any rivals to the throne. This was very common in that day. That's why Jonathan's saying, hey, when you're the king, please don't kill me. Oh, and by the way, and my family either. Will you please make this covenant? A covenant is like marriage is a covenant. It's a set of promises. It's an oath that you, that you speak, vows to each other. And so even in a covenant in the Old Testament, they would cut animals in two and they would separate the animals and the two people making this, the agreement would walk between the dead animals as if to say, if if I break this promise, should it be to me as it is to these animals? In other words, may there be justice done. May God then take judgment on me. So a covenant is very serious. Covenant is what's happening here. And Jonathan is asking for it and David grants it. Now he's thinking about that conversation, I believe, on the throne as he's sitting there pondering. But he's also thinking about a second conversation. So now we're going to flash back to the last time that David saw Saul. Saul was, had David on the run. He was trying to kill him in the middle of the wilderness. And David, David basically sneaks up and grabs his water, pit, water jar and goes a little ways away and goes, I could have killed you. I'm showing kindness to you. And this is what Saul says to David the very last time they saw each other. I know... This is 1 Samuel 24, verse 20. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Very similar conversation. Here's Saul saying, You're not going to wipe out my descendants, are you, after I'm gone and you're the king, like every other king, right? 
And David makes a promise both to Jonathan, now to Saul, that he's going to extend kindness to his family. And as we've been walking through this narrative and David becomes king in Hebron, king of the tribe of Judah, one of the sons of Saul, we talked about this last week, becomes the king over the other 11 tribes in the north. And, and David does not harm this man, Ishbosheth. Sheth. He just leaves him alone. And even when Ishbosheth is killed, he says, Nope, I am not guilty of this. Why? Because he's following through on his commitments to both Jonathan and Saul. I'm not going to harm your families. I'm going to be kind. He's made this commitment, this covenant. So back to verse one again. Let's, here's our passage again. So David asked, is there anyone left, still left in the house of Saul whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He's asking, is there anyone? He's not saying, is there anyone who's qualified? Is there anyone good looking? Is there anybody who can really help me? Is there anyone who'd make me look good? Is there anyone who's worthy? None of that. Regardless of who they are, is there anyone who could receive this grace that I have? I believe this is God's heart for us. Is there anyone out there who will respond to me? Because I want to give you grace, unmerited favor, kindness. This is unqualified acceptance as a result of unconditional love. It's very one-sided. You're not going to have to earn it. You're not going to have to deserve it. I just want to give it. In fact, you won't ever be able to repay it. Verse 2. So is there anyone? We're going to find out. Verse 2. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Whose kindness is it? God's kindness. Ziba answered the king, well, there is a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled in his feet, in both feet. It's interesting, this guy who played a large role in Saul's household, I mean, he's got 15 or 20 servants. He's very wealthy. When he's asked the question, he doesn't even say the man's name. He just says, there's a guy, but you need to know he's crippled. He's only focusing on the physical deformity. He's not saying his name. Yeah, there's a guy, but you don't need to know his name because he's not going to match your beautiful new house in Jerusalem and he's not going to blend into your court and you might not, you might want to con not consider him because, well, he's got some problems and it might be a real burden to you and it might really mess up everything in your throne room. How often do we look at the outsides when God says he looks at the heart? Even the choosing of David as a man after God's own heart. Samuel says God doesn't look at the outside, but that he looks at the heart. And so often we are distracted by the sin, the struggle, the zeal without wisdom of the younger generation. And instead of stopping and saying, but what's God doing inside? What does God have for you? Where is God working in you? And I want to draw that out. I want to call that out. I want to join God in his work in you. Oftentimes we get distracted by the outsides and miss the real work that God is doing. Certainly there's a temptation here for David to go, yeah, maybe this is too much work. I guess I can just probably just skip this. But look at David's response. Verse four, well, where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, oh, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. 
This is one of those verses that as you are doing your own personal Bible study, you're like, I have no idea what those words mean. I'm just going to skip over it. But I'm here to tell you that the Bible actually doesn't include as much as I would have liked to have, have it include. And every single thing matters. It means something. It's just as a, a matter of whether you're willing to open up Daddy Google and ask him, what does this mean? Because it's amazing how you can find these things very easily nowadays. Now, in the old days, you would have had to get a whole stack of books and, you know, you, you had to be the pastor and you had it. Nope. Nowadays, you guys have as much information as I do. You can just go and say, what does Lodabar mean? And it'll pop right up. So what's going on in this verse? David moves right on and says, where is he? he David's not saying, how ba- well, how bad are his feet crippled? And, uh, you know, how did he get hurt? And uh, is it going to be a hassle to get him here? He doesn't say any of those things. He says, where is he? The grace of God on display through David. And grace and kindness isn't picky. It's not looking for someone who deserves something or earns something, not demanding a certain response. Like, I'm, it's just giving. One-sided. It's a king who is stooping down to make sure that one who has been exiled or feels like they're shamefully put away is pulled back and is given a seat at the table. And in the same way, the king of kings, Jesus, did the same thing for me. And perhaps he did it for you, where he called me by name and has seated me at a table. So what's going on here? Well, he's at this house of Machir. This guy, we don't know much about Machir. All we know is he's filled with compassion. He has been housing him and taking care of him and sponsoring him for 15 or 20 years. He's been very generous and gracious. And later we're actually gonna see him be gracious and generous with David when David's on the run from his son, Absalom. This guy's a good guy. He embodies the kindness of God that we're gonna see in David in this passage. It's like a forecasting of what's going to happen through David. Now, Lodobar, why is he in Lodobar? What does that mean? Well, Lodobar means no pasture land. It is a place of desolation and desert. I think it's ironic and probably not coincidental that he's in a place that reflects what's going on inside him. He's a man who has run away and been in hiding. Why? Because every other king would have killed him because he's a potential heir to the throne. So he's hiding in this desert place and that desert place reflecting the desert place of his heart and feeling like if he's ever found by David, he'll be killed. So who is this mystery man? Well, back in 2 Samuel 4, 4, this writer drops in who this is just in one verse. It's just like, he like interrupts himself and just kind of says this and then leaves it. And then now we're coming back to it. Brilliant. The writers of the Bible, brilliant by themselves. We're going to give them credit. Holy Spirit inspired, even more brilliant and perfect. So this is what he says. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when this nurse, his nurse, uh, well, let's, Sorry, I got ahead of myself. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan dying in battle came from Jezreel. And the nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Say that five times fast. So what's going on here? 
We're finding out that the son of Jonathan, who David wants to be kind to, when the, the Philistines defeat the Israelite army and Saul and Jonathan, they die, it's likely that the Philistines moved in to that capital city of Gibeon. And Saul's family were on the run. And in, the hate, in haste, the nurse drops this five-year-old Mephibosheth. He breaks both ankles. And I'm just conjecture. I'm guessing he had compound fractures in both of his ankles. And they were never aligned. I know a little bit about broken legs right now. And I believe that they were never aligned and he could not walk. Mephibosheth. It's a mouthful. It means out of the mouth of shame. And in so many ways, this man was embodying his name. He had been kicked out or run away from the king's house. He was shamefully hiding across the Jordan River in the desert. His name could also be translated image breaker. I think his identity is broken. It's in shambles. So many of us feel the same way. That even though he had royal blood, he didn't even feel like he could be in the same city because he feared for his life. Even though he had a right to the throne, he doesn't even see himself as human, we're going to see. So his image is broken. And I think so many of us feel the same way. That we feel broken. We can't see a way to ever get put back together again. But I'm here to tell you, God is faithful. He will move. He will heal. He will help you if you're willing to say, yes, Lord, I, I want to be healed. Well, so this is our guy, Mephibosheth. Now, what kind of leader is David at this point? You're just going to just kind of put a pin in that. 2 Samuel 8, 15 tells us what kind of leader David is. David reigned over all Israel and David administers justice and righteousness for all his people. David is a good leader. He's fair. He's just. He's good. And in this situation, we're going to totally see that play out. Verse 5, back to our passage. So King David had Mephibosheth brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Can you imagine the fear and trepidation when the king's men, oh no, they finally found me. I'm as good as dead. How much fear there must have been for him. And yet he gets in David's presence and he throws his crutches on the ground and he falls headlong in humility before David. David calls him by name. He's recognized as a person. He's given honor that way. Eugene Peterson writes this. We can love only a named person who has a past, a present, and a future. So many times as we've done ministry with those who are homeless or on the street or down and out. The most remarkable thing is when you find out someone's name and you say their name. And it's powerful. And it gives them dignity and humanity. It's so important for us to see the power in a name. It also is true if you're trying to love your neighbor. We're going to talk a lot about this this fall. But let me just say this. 
If you're going to love your neighbor, well, you got to know their name first. That seems really silly, but that might be your next project. That you would linger at the mailbox. That you'd pay attention when the neighbors are out mowing their lawn. That you would maybe run out and put your garbage can out at the same time. That you'd find out what their names are. Because then you could begin to pray for them by name. You don't even have to know anything about them to begin praying for them. Beginning to ask for God's presence to come on your block. So there is this powerful exchange where David says his name. What happens next? Verse 7. This reassurance from David. Do not be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness, the chesed, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Complete paradigm shift. Over 365 times in the Bible, it says, do not fear. I think that's on purpose. Why? Because we need to hear it at least once a day. We're so prone to fall into fear. And yet there's this little Hebrew word for surely. Surely I will show God's kindness to you. I believe that David is purposefully adding strength to his commitment to Mephibosheth. Going, oh, I'm surely going to help you. I'm like, well, I kind of might help you. No, I'm surely going to do this. This is an effort to try to destroy and dissolve fear and doubt. And I think when David says it, he's got a joy in his face. He's already made up his mind before Mephibosheth even got in his presence. I'm going to bless this guy. I'm going to make sure he eats at my table. He's already thought about kindness before this opportunity to show kindness comes about. I believe he has a yes face. What do you mean a yes face, Andrew? Let me tell you the story of Thomas Jefferson. He, of course, was one of our early United States presidents. He's with a group of people on horseback, men, and they were crossing a swollen river. And several of the men went before Jefferson and said, it's, it's good, sir, you can cross. In the midst of it, this lonely stranger, this wayfaring traveler happened to be there, didn't have a horse, and looked up to Thomas Jefferson and said, please, sir, will you take me across the river on, your, on the back of your horse? And Jefferson agreed. The man climbed on the back of his horse. They successfully forded the river. And after a successful crossing, the other men on the other side gathered around and said, why did you ask the president to take you across the river? And this man is shocked. He says, I didn't know that was a president. All I know was on some of the faces, on some of your faces is written the answer no. And on some of the faces, it's written, the answer is written yes. And his was a yes face. I think kindness often starts with a look on your face long before the words came out of your mouth, the money comes out of your wallet, the service comes to your hands and blessings flow. There's a decision that's made here to bless. A decision to show the chesed of God. A decision to reflect God's goodness to others. And yes, sometimes you're grinning and bearing it because it seems like it's in an inconvenient time and costly way. 
But I believe when you've decided in your heart ahead of time, I will walk in this way to show and reveal who God is, your face will forecast. You will have a yes face. And just think that the presence of the desire to love and to sacrifice and to help and to be kind precedes action. It's a decision you make beforehand, before the needs are clear. Anyway, verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Okay, we've got an identity problem here. Um, dead dogs were contemptible to Jews. If you've ever done a, a, a trip in Mexico, you've probably seen some dead dogs on the street. Um, it is uh, something to behold. Basically, my understanding is that basically it means I, I am an embarrassing piece of garbage on the street. That's what he's saying. And some people, let me point to this comment and go, oh, how humble he is. <clears throat> Wrong answer. This is not strong and, and identity that comes from God. This is not humility. This is a broken image. This is one who still sees himself as less than human. But David has used his name. David has humanized him already. David has called to him and said, I'm going to take care of you. Mephibosheth's name can also mean shame destroyer. And I think David is doing this. He's actually destroying shame over Mephibosheth by kindness. He's actually modeling for Mephibosheth how to live out the destiny written on his life. He's breaking that sense of I'm less than human and saying, no, you're a favorite prince. You sit at the king's table. So while God shapes our character through painful circumstances, and we talk about that a lot around here because we need to recognize it, he also works through the kindness of fathers and mothers to destroy shame and reveal and reinforce what our true identity is. It's so important for us to speak into the lives of others, to help them see themselves how God sees them. Sometimes you call those prophetic words, but that for a different day. Verse nine. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. And you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my Lord, the king commands your servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. This is one of the most beautiful examples of one-sided, God-given kindness and grace in the Bible. It's such a powerful example of God reaching down as the king 
and pulling us up. When we couldn't pull ourselves up, we couldn't earn or deserve our own salvation. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works that no one should boast. But how do we model this same hesed to a watching world? Mother Teresa said this, be the living expression of God's kindness, kindness in your eyes, kindness in your smile. There's a sense of being a promise keeper, one who is consistent. Kindness is found in keeping your word. What does it look like for you in the covenants you've made, those commitments you've made with a work partner, with your spouse, with your roommate, with others to make good on your word? How can you show the kindness of God to your children? Let's say in how you speak to them. And oftentimes it's not the words you say, it's the tone you use. In what ways can the kindness of God be shown to your neighbors? In tangible ways. Some of you are wrestling with caring for elderly family members, maybe parents. What does kindness look like in those situations? How simple can this end up being in our application? Well, I want to show you one example from the news of all things that shows how simple and transformative kindness can actually be. Take a look. Something unexpected happened at a rough-and-tumble skate park. It even caught the attention of the police. Here's Steve Hartman on the road. How do kids behave when no grown-ups are around? Danette Mabes of South Brunswick, New Jersey says you never really know. Because you're not watching him at that moment and at that time. She had always just assumed her son was good. Right. Until recently, when 13-year-old Gavin Mabes got caught on tape showing his true character. Oh my God. Gavin and some middle school friends had just arrived at a skate park. The park was empty, except for little Carter Brunel, who was here with his mother celebrating his fifth birthday. Carter is autistic. Big groups of older kids can make him nervous, so his mom Kristen was fully prepared to get him out of there. She just wasn't prepared for what happened next. I don't know, they've really just shocked me. It was unlike any experience I think I've ever had. You know how middle school kids sometimes operate like they're in a pack? Well, that's pretty much what happened here. Gavin led the way and the others followed. The only surprise was that Gavin didn't start trouble. He started a friendship. This kid's already better than me. Gavin's just going around with him and making him feel special. And the rest of his friends kind of followed suit and then started singing happy birthday to him. Happy birthday! That really blew me away because you just want to see the kindness in the world. And I wanted Carter to have a good birthday. It was such a great birthday yeah. and such a kind deed. Even the local police department responded. And we're going to throw you guys a pizza party next week over at school. But here's the best part. Since their first meeting, Gavin and the middle schoolers have continued to go out of their way to play with Carter. He was just so happy and he made us all happy. So fun to be around. Yeah. He's rad. Yeah. <laughs> and as for the moms, You're awesome. for them, this was a moment of parenting utopia where the only thing better than seeing your kid treated kindly is knowing that your kid is treating others kindly. 
even when you're not watching. That was so cool. I was just so proud of him. You want to race? He's good. You did it right. Thank you. <laughs> Steve Hartman on the road in South Brunswick, New Jersey. It's too simple. Kindness makes the invisible God real and tangible when we love one another the way that he does. It's my prayer that we will make the decision today to look for ways to be kind. Long before the needs are apparent, long before you're in the moment, that you'll make the decision to be used by God. So Jesus, thank you that you first showed us kindness by laying your life down for us. I pray, Lord, that you'd show us in small ways how we can live our lives like you, laying our lives down, sacrificing, loving, giving, serving, and putting others first. Pray, Lord, that this would be such a signpost of who you are, that the invisible God would be seen through us. So thank you, Lord, that we don't have to do this on our own, that the Holy Spirit pours out your love, God, through our hearts and to others. And so give us a new gift of your love today to give away to others. Help us to have eyes to see needs and ways that we can be kind. And Jesus, we want to look like you. So teach us how to do that. I bless this, our family, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So glad you came this morning. I want to encourage you, grab your trash on the way out. We've also got prayer in the chapel on this side. And um, we're excited to see you next week. And if you want to help move a few plants, you can come on down here afterwards. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.